Welcome to another episode of Axis of Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Welcome from Telephone Land. <laughs> uh, we had to set this up a little strangely, recording separately, but my internet's been a little weird, so I'm also talking into my phone at the moment. So I'm holding my phone next to my head while also talking into my microphone. It's a little exhausting. That sounds quite exhausting but it reminds me of the way i recorded some interviews in the past like i think i did an interview like that with the team from monolith soft and uh it was weird but it got the job done speaking of exhausting we're going to be reviewing paper mario the origami king today <laughs> you just you just left right into that didn't you cat uh, do you like that segue right there because man this discourse around paper mario the origami king sure has left me feeling exhausted Oh, yeah, as if we weren't all exhausted enough already. Let's let's add discourse on top of that. Let's do it. Yeah, and that's on top of the Ghost of Tsushima discourse, which I'm sure will be not toxic at all. I've been kind of ignoring that, and I feel like that's the best move. Is there a single game outside of Animal Crossing that hasn't been toxic yet? Uh, I think... No, no, not really. It's, it's, it's been all pretty, pretty much toxic. all toxic, right? It's all a toxic waste dump. Do not, do not wade... I mean, 2020 has been a big old toxic waste dump in general, right? I think that's the problem. People are very, very wound up for very valid reasons, and they got to get it out somehow. So they're just going to go yell on the internet about video games? Got to yell somewhere. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I feel like my Twitter feed is yelling at me at all the time, so. Yeah, um, people definitely uh, are on the always on the cusp of picking a fight, it seems. I've, I've been good at desensitizing, not desensitizing, de-escalating things. Uh, comes back from my customer service years. Very helpful in that regard. All right, so we're going to review Paper Mario the Origami King. We're going to do our track of the week. We are going to talk about some of the latest RPG news. In the meantime, if you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to leave a review on our Apple podcast or wherever podcaster of your choice. It helps the visibility of the show, and we really appreciate it. It always brightens our day to see nice comments from our listenership. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And you should follow us at all of the US Gamer accounts. We also have a new podcast. Well, it's up on now. It's on to episode five at this point. It's called Branching Narratives. It's hosted by veteran game journalist Jeff Green. And this week we had Gary Witta on the show, Nadia. Oh, very He had nice. a lot of really interesting stories about working on Star Wars Rogue One. And also uh, his animal talking show, uh, the making of that. My, but my favorite part of the show, I think, was his re- recollections of PC Gamer versus Computer Gaming World back in the, the 90s. The oh. old PC Gaming magazine wars of the 1990s. Now that would be that would be a discussion because uh, I even just being on the reading end of all that stuff, it was pretty intense sometimes. It's pretty funny because CGW was number two versus PC Gamer. And Gary was like, well, you know, it's easier not to hate somebody when you're number one. And Jeff was like, I, we hated your guts. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? We hated you guys. <laughs> yeah. And it was pretty amazing to listen to him talk about, like, after the premiere of Rogue One, when the credits were going, his co-writer turned to him and said, this is it. We're in the blue, we're in the blue credits forever. <laughs> <laughs> what are the blue credits? After Star Wars is over, you know, they always had the oh, same blue credits with the theme, yes. the overture. Yeah, da, 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 the da, blue yeah. text. Okay, I forgot it's blue, frankly. And he talked about sitting in the, the boardroom at Lucas 
uh, with Kathleen Kennedy and his his co-writer pitching Rogue One and how intense that was. Anyway, you should go listen to the podcast. It's really good. Yeah, that sounds actually really cool. I like old stories like that. And Gary's a a, a great podcast, just a great and interesting person in general. So he he can talk forever, it seems like. (laughs) (laughs) And he will. We also have a newsletter that goes up every single Wednesday. And this week, Nadia was obviously trying to pick an argument with me. Yeah, we're talking about like, you know, everyone trying to argue with everyone else in these really heated times. Yeah, I guess I was picking a fight with you. But uh, at the same time, okay, just to give you all this perspective, you should sign up for the newsletter to get it all for yourself. Um, I talked a little bit about grinding and how it's in an RPG sense. Haha, it's I find it kind of relaxing, kind of hypnotic, kind of fun. That's something I have talked about on this show before. And it's something that I still believe. Sometimes I just kind of put on my own music and grind away. Sometimes I just listen to uh, the game's music and keep on going. Like right now in Final Fantasy XIV, I'm grinding Centurio Seal so I can get a Wyvern mount. It's so tedious and so stupid, but I, I want to do it just because, I don't know, I want, I want a Wyvern. Why the hell wouldn't I want a Wyvern? But Cat uh, is not a fan of grinding, as we have discussed in the past. But I did mention that well, your your childhood history with grinding up Pokemon probably soured you on the activity for a good long while. But also, I just see it as an, a- an anachronistic kind of uh, thing that was originally introduced to artificially elongate these RPGs because they didn't have a lot of memory space and they wanted to give you some bang for your bucks. So just have you do the same uh, stupid activity over and over again. And for some reason, it has stuck as this thing that you do in RPGs. These days, it usually takes on kind of a darker tone in that you have, they're like, oh yeah, well, you could grind for hours and hours and hours to get your wife murdered tomorrow, or you know, you could spend five bucks and get it right now. Don't yeah, you want to spend the five bucks? Do that. You can't do that in, in, in 14. They're very specific about which mounts you can buy, um, and most of those are just exclusive to the store. If you want your stupid wyvern, you got to grind for it. But Trust they're getting me, a, something else from it. You're paying a subscription, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the longer that you're working toward that Wyvern Mart, the more that you're playing your game and less likely you are to cancel your subscription. It's all very cynical in the way that they implement this. And I find it pretty artificial and annoying, actually. Yeah, it's also just my own stupid fault. There's a million billion things to do in, in Final Fantasy that isn't grinding. In fact, it's very hard to grind for uh, experience in Final Fantasy. I'm just grinding for a stupid currency. But yeah, I, I also see where you're coming from. But I also brought up another point in my newsletter. I sometimes feel like I grind because I'm putting off the inevitable. I don't want a game to end, so I just keep on grinding so I don't have to face the final boss. Sometimes I'm kind of intimidated by a boss. Uh, for example, the, one example I pointed out was uh, the Beast Rune in Suikoden 2. When I kind of saw the cinema of it just kind of rising up over the castle it kind of scared the crap out of me i'm like i am not fighting that so i just sat there fighting things forever instead whenever i start grinding for a thing in a video game i start to become keenly aware of the fact that actually my lifespan is going to be pretty limited and i only have so many (laughs) healthy years remaining on this planet and why in god's name am i wasting it trying to get some artificial thing in some video game that i'm going to completely forget about in x amount of time and I feel, just feel like I could be doing better things with my time, playing other games, experiencing life, spending time with my loved how ones. How many years did you, how many hours? Hell, it might even been years. Have you put into FIFA? I mean, I put 200 hours into the most recent FIFA, 
and that game was just all grinding. <laughs> yeah, like it, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And I have all of the regrets in the world and I'm absolutely going to do it again this year because I'm an addict. Yeah, there. You, I guess that come, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? We're all just filthy addicts in the end. We're all sinners. I just, I don't see anything redeeming about grinding. Like people attach their own meaning to it. Oh, I find it meditative and relaxing. And that's fine and everything, but almost always the implementation of grinding is this extremely cynical or lazy thing. It's almost like a shortcut. It's like, well, we don't have anything better to put into this. We don't have any more interesting content. We don't have any more interesting quests. So uh, we're just going to do, we're just going to rely on sheer repetition because it's a failure of imagination. I'll, uh, I'll take a picture of my wyvern mount and post it on Twitter for you, Kat. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's a very pretty wyvern and that you can reflect on the 30 so or so odd hours of grinding for it with happiness. I'll name it Grindy. <laughs> anyway, you should subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday. It's on the top of the US Gamer website, so that can be relatively easy to get to. Uh, speaking of grinding, I've been playing Ghost of Tsushima, which I'm almost done with. I'm I'm almost to the end of that, and that's a little bit of a grind at times, though not that bad, honestly. You seem to like it. I think at first you seemed a little bit eh about it, but then you actually played it and you you enjoyed it for what it is. It was like kind of more of a junk food game than anything. Yeah, initially I was pretty down on it because I was like, uh, this open world game has no imagination whatsoever. Uh, the combat feels really weak after playing Last of Us Part Two, which is has some of the smoothest and most enjoyable action gunplay that I've enjoyed in an actual game. And I don't know, like it felt very cynical to me. But over time, you know, I got some really good armor in that game. <laughs> <laughs> and I had my horse that I could pet. And I was constantly just ogling these absolutely incredible landscapes. And, you know, a lot of people have kind of rightfully pointed out, I was like, uh, what is this Western studio that's trying to recapture a specific moment in Japanese history? It's almost like weirdly voyeuristic. Uh, they're paying tribute to samurai, old samurai films, but they're not, but it's only skin deep. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it made me deeply nostalgic for my time in Japan. It doesn't sound like it has much depth beyond what you would find in a samurai film, which is, in my my opinion, that's pretty okay. It's no point, no uh, point in stressing out over playing it. Like it just seems like it's a good distraction. Yeah, it's really old fashioned in a lot of ways. It's a pure power fantasy, and that is it. It really does not go any deeper than that. It feels like a game that probably should have been made five years ago and yeah. would have been received differently. I feel, but. I think that we're thinking about games and representation a little bit differently these days. And so Ghost of Tsushima is bound to be a kind of a heated talking point over time. It's been interesting because I've kind of viewed, as, as I've watched, the discussion has kind of shifted from, well, I mean, what is this representation of Japan? Uh, should this Western studio be doing this to, man, it's kind of a nationalistic like mm -hmm. view of Japanese history, especially in the way that it treats the Mongols as the foreign hordes yeah. that are coming for you, you know. So people are people are in the middle of doing kind of these deeper readings of it. I don't know if it justifies a deeper reading. I feel like Sucker Punch went, Man, you know, you know what we really like? Samurai films. You know what game we wanna <laughs> you know what we want to do? Let's make a game that pays tribute to Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Yeah. Nobody's ever done that before. 
Yeah, pretty much. Like, uh, someone basically took the game and, or, like, overlaid it with the song, like, One Week uh, by Bare Naked Ladies, and it fit pretty good. Um, <laughs> I've heard some people play, say, like, oh, play Sekiro instead, but God, it seems like a totally different game than, than oh, this. 100% a different experience. Sekiro is much more nourishing experience. It's a much deeper and more interesting action game. It's made by an actual Japanese studio. It has a different feel to it. Uh, there's something a little bit off about Ghost of Tsushima, but it's not trying to be a nourishing action game. It's trying to be Assassin's Creed, you know? Pure power exactly. fantasy, making you feel like a badass, riding through the beautiful fields of uh, Japan with the, the cherry blossom petals flying and everything. It and is very cinematic. Like, just a, a movie, a Japanese a, a samurai movie come to life. Also, you can pet the foxes, as I recall. Yeah, as for our RPG fans who are listening to this, has a few RPG elements. This is definitely not an RPG. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even have XP, I don't think. It just has ability points that you can put into different tech trees. So it is valid for like an opening discussion, but not a deep dive. That's that's the criteria. There are some good... I think my favorite part of it is definitely the side quests, where mm-hmm. they're split across multiple parts, and they tell some pretty solid stories. I mean, not nothing amazing, nothing particularly exciting or anything, but enjoyable, enjoyable. Um, that's cool. And then also I did these mythic quests where I was going after the, the fancy armor or the fancy sword, and that's kind of where the grinding comes in. Where like there was one where it's like, okay, you want to get this super fancy samurai armor. Okay, you have to clear out six can- six Mongol camps in order to be able to access the end part of this quest. I was like, uh, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> so I spent like two it. hours doing that, but I got the most baller samurai armor. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm a giant hypocrite. No, pretty much. Ain't just lecture me for spending time on a wyvern. But it's cynical. Of they did that cynical. because they didn't have anything else. They just needed content, so they're like, whatever, just kill six Mongol camps, whatever. Just don't, don't think about it. We don't have anything interesting or more creative to put in here. Well, coming that, from a time... That's the bad part of grinding. Coming from a time when game content was basically finding ways to screw you over so you would die over and over again and keep on playing, I'll, I will take the clearing out six Mongol camps for some baller-ass armor. I mean, that goes back to American arcades in particular, which... People treat as a test of skill. No, actually, they were very cynically and often poorly designed to steal your money. Yeah, pretty much. But you didn't get any armor. <laughs> no, you didn't. You just kind of stood there and went, well, I sure did die after the second level. That was well, a fun... I sure did spend all my laundry money. I did... That, that, that was a fun use of my 25 cents. <laughs> I, I remember my parents would give me lunch money when I would go on a field trip and I would just spend it all on video games, like on the arcades. <laughs> I had no self-control whatsoever, and then I would be hungry. Well, of course you'd be hungry. <laughs> you, you can't eat victories on Street Fighter. Anyway, I don't think Ghost of Tsushima is going to be on my best of list or anything. I believe I called it my guiltiest pleasure of 2020. Yeah, that works. It's, it yeah. is what it is, and it knows what it is. Yeah, it did definitely give me about 40 hours of enjoyment, I guess. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, I doubt I'll, remember, I'll even remember it a year from now, but uh, it... Got me through uh, a couple weeks, and I there were moments where I genuinely enjoyed it, and there were moments where I was like, "Am I really gonna finish this game?" Because it sure is, <laughs> it sure is video game junk food. I gotta say, that's another great uh, back of the box uh, quote from Cat. Am I even gonna finish this? 
I believe that I compared it to the sour, the bag of Sour Patch Kids in the fridge, to which people went, wait a minute, you put Sour Patch Kids in your fridge? And I go, sure. And I go, absolutely. The the cold, colder and harder is better. I yeah, totally agree. When you have wine gums, you put them in the freezer. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, you yeah, definitely want bring, wine gums Yeah, bring you freezer. some wine gums, put them in the freezer. See, Nadia already, always brings this Canadian candy when we actually get to meet one another, which is nice. Yes, I do. I always bring a coffee crisp. You could have brought us a Canadian candy for E3, but that didn't end up happening. Sorry womp, for rubbing womp. salt into the wound. That, that, that stunk. Yeah, not, not for PAX either. Well, maybe next year. Okay, let's talk about the RPG news a little bit. First of all, Fallout 76 is out on Game Pass. People seem to like that game now. Uh, I don't really have any interest in playing it, but good to know, right? Yeah, I'm wondering if... I don't think we're going to have a full redemption arc the way we have. It's not going to be like a Realm Reborn or No Man's Sky, but I think eventually it'll find its I audience. I think we've already... I think we're already there. I think the redemption arc has already happened. Uh, apparently, like, uh, to Bethesda's credit, they didn't give up on it. They kept working at it, and then they hammered into something apparently worth playing, or at the very least, it has its it has its fan base that accepts its many flaws and just enjoys it for what it is. Well, now it's a full-on RPG with uh, the Wastelanders DLC and everything. Right. I, I guess they just miscalculated, you know, with the original. And we've talked about the Wastelander DLC in previous episodes, but... Uh, I don't know. They've they've turned it around more or less. It's not an amazing game, but it's fine. It's uh, I do like, however, that established players have apparently been welcoming people coming out of the vault with this weird nuka drink that if you drink it, you might end up in a random part of the map where you get attacked by <laughs> super high level enemies. <laughs> Just picturing you end up at the bottom of a trench on one of those big bat things, the, the scorch beast, I think they were called. Just completely annihilates you either it, i don't know if it kills you first or the radiation kills you first but either way you're dead that's some really good trolling first class trolling i gotta say well done fallout 76 players that is pretty good thank you that, that's entertaining all right option number two uh final fantasy 7 remake part two news maybe is that players may have confirmation of the calm flashback nadia you wrote this article do you want to talk about it a little bit um i think Kieran wrote it but i do know what it references if you if you've played Final Fantasy VII, uh, then you know that once you leave Midgar, you enter the town of Calm, and it, that's where you get a big, huge story dump, and that's where you actually learn for the first time who Sephiroth is and, and you know what he's up to. Whereas, of course, in the Final Fantasy remake Part One, that was already like that's done. That's we know who that is. That cat's out of the bag. A lot of people are wondering, well, does that mean there's going to be a Calm flashback at all? And Apparently, Tifa's voice actor shared a picture of her wielding a sword, quote-unquote, like a stick or a sword, you know, how, you know what I mean. And that would indicate that, without getting into too much spoilers, that would correlate to a scene that is in the flashback that we see in Calm in the vanilla version of the game. So uh, it's a very small clue for a very small thing, but... We're so starved for Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two news at this point. People will take anything. We already saw teases in Final Fantasy VII Remake Part One where Cloud You're is right. having various flashbacks to what happened there, right? So it only makes sense that they're setting it up for a full reveal, maybe in Part Two. Yeah, like without getting too spoilery, I will say it involves like Tifa in her like kind of cute little cowgirl outfit, um, and we do yes. see that in the first uh, part. So. It, is, it does indicate that we will be seeing the flashback in some regard in part two. 
I just want to say that I do think that just by virtue of the fact that you're doing the flashbacks, the isolated flashbacks in part one, it will remove some of the impact that you will see in part two. Because mm-hmm. in the original Final Fantasy VII, you don't really see any Sephiroth at all in the opening arc, right? No. Until the very end. And then it's like, whoa, okay, this Sephiroth guy, wow, what the heck is happening here? And it's like, well, allow us to explain. And then you get... Yeah this really great flashback to kind of open up uh, part two, right? Whereas this one, we've seen a lot of the different flashbacks. So it's going to have, and we've seen a lot of Sephiroth in part one. So it's going to have maybe a little bit less impact. Though part two could be interesting if they made the calm flashback a cold open. That would be interesting. Yes. And that would make some sense. Uh, Especially if they have no plans to make a a world map after all. Just start us off in calm and, and go from there. In the vanilla version of Final Fantasy VII, Sephiroth was really a slow burn. And I guess there's just no way they're going to do that in this day and age because, as I said, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody loves Sephiroth, so they're going to stuff him in there as much as he possibly can be. Everybody always... Nobody has any any patience anymore. Like Everybody would say that the original Star Wars... In 1977, the original Star Wars would have been action-packed from start to finish. And people today are like, Star Wars is so slow. Man, look at all that setup. <laughs> So much time, R2, D2, and C3PO wandering through the desert. Stupid Wolverines. Sometimes it's okay for a show to leave some moments to breathe. Sometimes a movie like Alien can take its dang sweet time getting to the the facehugger. It's called Build Up, damn it. Yeah, people kind of don't appreciate the art of Build Up anymore. You freaking kids? Oh, no, I'm old. I'm sure people have said that in the past, too. We're here talking about, like, oh, Alien and Star Wars. And I'm sure that people in the past who were our age at the time were like oh these stupid action movies so loud so violent when i was a kid (laughs) okay last item of news dragon's dogma netflix anime is launching in september hooray i mean i don't really watch anime or netflix well i mean i watch netflix but i don't i haven't really watched anything like the witcher or castlevania but you've watched castlevania at least are you excited for the dragon's dogma anime nadia I haven't played Dragon's Dogma, so I don't know. Um, you should play Dragon's Dogma. It's pretty I good. should. I know I'd like it. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I still haven't watched season three of Castlevania. It's like I like parts of it, but I also feel like it's so try hard that it really annoys me sometimes. Like, you don't have to. I swear like a sailor. You all know. You know that. I swear like a sailor. I'm filthy minded. I'm, I'm a terrible person. But even I have. I know when to rein it in. And stuff that appears on you know, on Netflix, especially these like, quote unquote, adult cartoons, they just never stop. And it gets so tiring. And I'm not saying, of course, Trevor can't swear, Alucard can't swear. I do love Alucard in that show, by the way. But this, it doesn't have to happen all the time. Just grow up. Be, be an adult. People don't talk with this all the time. Just tone it down a bit. So so we're going to be probably going to see more of the kind of the same tone of writing with, with uh, Dragon's Dogma because it's been so successful with Castlevania. And what are you going to do? I don't hate it by any means. I I just don't adore it the way some people do. It's just... The floodgates are officially open now. We're going to get a freaking anime or a TV show for every single RPG under the sun. We saw that, uh, I think, an episode or two ago when we were discussing all of the announcements. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And to be fair, I'd rather live in a world where we do have these options rather than not having them. Or worse, going back to the 80s when you had Captain N which is an absolute trash show. 
Anyone who says otherwise is completely blinded by nostalgia. The only remotely cool episodes were the ones where Captain N teamed up with Link. Those were kind of neat. But otherwise, they were just, like, badly animated, badly written, badly voice acted. Just, eh. I don't really know why these exist except for more money. Because you just answered your own question. I don't re- well, I don't understand the point of watching them. Because if I want to enjoy these games, or the, I would just play the games. Like yeah. I have, I have the game. It's it exists. Why would I go to a more passive uh, experience like watching Netflix uh, to enjoy Fallout or The Witcher or Dragon's Dogma? I, I, I have guess, a video game. Yeah, that's the thing though. They're not quite based entirely on the games. Like The Witcher is based more on the books. Yeah, it usually makes them worse. Nobody, <laughs> nobody would ever call The Witcher Netflix to be as good as Witcher Three. I mean, at least that's based on books. I mean. True. If you look at, say, the Persona 4 anime, nobody in their right mind would ever say that was as good as the video game. They add stuff that makes it, like, uh, same with the Valkyria Chronicles anime. But they have double Chie because she appears twice in one frame. <laughs> <laughs> Can you not say that's great? Um, like, these adaptations, I don't know. Like, they just, I don't really see the artistic merit. I guess they tell their own stories. Like, the Castlevania one is really an amalgamation of Castlevania 3, Symphony of the Night, and most interesting, uh, Curse of Darkness, which was a... Uh, uh, I think was a very underappreciated PlayStation game uh, that was one of the 3D games, so that's probably why it was underappreciated, but I still, I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed the demon forging, and one of the major characters from the anime, Hector, was introduced in that game. Well, Castlevania makes sense, because Castlevania as a series is dead. Yeah, at this rate, I'm really hoping we'll get, like, Symphony of the Night on Switch, but I'm not hoping for much else, because there's, there's no point in torturing myself with hope. So at least with Castlevania Netflix, we get something new in that series. But, you know, with Fallout, well, what's the point of a Fallout show? Fallout is going to be so hokey, I feel like, and not in a fun way, just in a hokey ass stale way. I'm just picturing, I don't know, I feel like the cutscene to get in, like, the, for example, the start of Fallout 4, it know is very self-aware. It knows what it is. But if the if the anime tries to take that seriously, uh, it's going to bounce so hard. And there's a back-of-the-box uh, quote or a poster quote from Nadia, a uh, hokey-ass fail. <laughs> We're just writing them left and right today, aren't we? Okay, Nadia, that's all of the news. Let's continue on to Paper Mario the Origami King with Game Explains' Andre Seegers. Don't go away. All right, I'm here with Game Explains' Andre Seegers, and we're going to be talking about Paper Mario the Origami King, the reviews of which came out earlier this week. Andre, I'm curious, what did Game Explain give to Paper Mario the Origami King? Uh, I said I liked it. I had some uh, some issues with the game for a fair amount of its duration, uh, but ultimately it did win me over in the end. So I probably, I was pretty mixed on a lot of it, but it won me over so I gave it a liked, or on our scale I gave it a liked. And Nadia, you gave it a 4 out of 5 on US yes. Gamer's official review. Yes, so that would be, uh, I guess, in the context of the uh, Game Explained scale, that would be between a liked and a liked a lot. <laughs> That's my <laughs> best guess, because that, that more or less reflects how I, how I feel about the game. This has been a weirdly controversial game, one of the more controversial <laughs> Nintendo games of the year. I haven't been this tired covering a game since Pokemon Sword and Shield. Thankfully, oh, it's not as bad as that because the, the fan base just isn't there. But 
it's still quite vocal and yeah. quite a bit of noise. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, we did have some of those too around the previous releases as well, but now that it's on a major, majorly successful console, I think it's just being uh, amplified. So there is a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of people want, want their voice heard about this game, it seems. What is it about this game that is so, I don't know, like, why is it so toxic? It's, I think it's because it's not the Thousand Year Door 2. It's yeah, not, you basically summed it, it up. Yeah, it's not a sequel. It's, it's, it doesn't fit a very specific uh, image that people have of Paper Mario in their minds, which hasn't existed for 15 years now. And uh, they just really, they just really want that game that they have in their heads. Oh my God! It's been 15 years since Thousand Year Door. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, it's been so long. What is that image that they have in their head? Uh, basically Thousand Year Door was much more of a straight RPG in that you had your turn-based battle system, you had, uh, very creative, very imaginative takes on the Mario universe, the Mario characters. Basically, it's almost as if you took the Mario, uh, you know, menagerie and dressed them up for kind of a LARP session, almost. (laughs) It was very free with its imagination, and admittedly, yes, it was very. It had a much more satisfying battle system in that it was almost just like a traditional battle system. You battled for experience, and that's something you don't do in modern Paper Mario games. And some people think that's a huge deterrent. Opinions vary on that for for other people, but yeah, they want basically that straight up traditional RPG that happens to take place in the Mario universe, mm-hmm. which you can honestly get with Mario and Luigi. Just saying, throwing that out there, which is a great series. But anyway, we're not talking about that. And what is it? Why are people so hung up on XP in particular? Why is it? Why is this a thing? It's because people just assume that if you have XP, that means it's deeper. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Yeah, I think. I think it's a couple of things. People like that external reward to justify why they're battling, and it's on the one hand, I, I kind of get it. On the other hand, it's kind of weird that people are so eager to just find themselves in a Skinner box, which basically exactly. that's what XP is. Um, and I said in our review, I think I said in our review, that I, I, I don't think XP is necessarily fundamental to the Paper Mario experience. And I think they've proven that. I think they've made a couple of good games now. I, For the record, I hated Sticker Star, but I've actually liked the previous two games. And they don't really have an a, a, a actual form of XP. There are things that kind of loosely correlate to it, but not really. Um, so yeah, I think it's partially that people really want that that external reward. But I also think that they also are that shorthand for as uh, as you were touching on er- or as we were touching on earlier for it not being a proper RPG like the first two. Yeah, so. like I feel like that experience in general. It's not so much about experience. It's more like the very idea of experience in this in these Mario games has become kind of a mascot or a poster face for right. for what the series was and what it has become. I've always seen the Paper Mario series as being less of a deep RPG experience and much more about really good writing, a lot a healthy sense of humor, a lot of charm. And that's okay. And it doesn't feel like that's been lost from the Paper Mario series. I feel like people thought I was dissing Thousand Year Door with that tweet. And I, I really wasn't, actually. I was saying that Thousand Year Door was really good. It just, its strengths were not in terms of having a really in-depth battle system which is what people seem to want with this series i think it's hard to say what people want sometimes you'll get a million (laughs) different answers when you talk to someone because you're absolutely right paper mario is not the deepest rpg in history 
But you have you were onto something when you said the writing is good, the characters are good, the universe is good, and all of that to my in my opinion still applies to the modern Paper Mario games. But if you look on Twitter, you will see plenty of people picking apart every single joke, every single line in the newer Paper Mario games to prove, quote-unquote, oh, look how lame the writing has become, look how tired these jokes are, when they're it's pretty much the same tone as the Paper Mario series. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just people kind of justifying their hate, really. Yeah, that is kind of funny. I just replayed Thousand Year Door a few weeks ago for um, a game club series we have on our channel, like a book club. And yeah, the writing the writing isn't all that far removed from how it is these days. So it is kind of funny or ironic or hypocritical to see people tearing apart the writing of recent games when it's pretty much right aligned with how the series has been. Um, but to your point, Kat, you're right. And Paper Mario isn't that deep of a game. But I don't know if... I think it actually is partially its appeal in that... Like for me, for instance, I'm not particularly fond of most JRPGs. So part of the reason, part of the reason why the Paper Mario series appealed to me is because it was simple. Like it feels like they kind of boiled down RPGs to just their core yes. essential assets. And they retained just enough so that there is strategy to it still without like overcomplicating things. It's very simple. And one thing I liked about the originals that even the newer games kind of mess up is they really boiled everything down to their core essentials to the point you start the game with 10 HP, every coin is worth something. Whereas in this game, <laughs> I had in the Origami King, I had 13,000 coins within like two hours. <laughs> and I even know, yeah. like I didn't have a they great grasp of how them. the economy worked. Exactly, yeah. They literally shower you with them. Um, I will say though that if you want to get all the collectibles in Paper Mario, the, uh, the Origami King, you're going to spend that money. Yep. Because yeah. the, the NPCs sell them, and man, they charge for them. Oh, yeah. I was all over the place. Like I, I'm like, oh, I'm rich. Then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, I'm broke. <laughs> I'm broke <laughs> I, as hell. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about Paper Mario, the Origami King. I, I'd be curious to know, as given that you guys have finished it, what do you see as its relative strengths? And maybe talk a little bit about its weaknesses. And I suppose we should start with Nadia. Mm-hmm. Yes, start with me every time. Um, <laughs> I think uh, its strengths play to most of the Paper Mario strengths in that whatever you think about the gameplay, the writing, the characters, all that is very charming. But for the Origami King by itself, um, I feel like there was, uh, and Andre might disagree with me on this one, I feel like I had a lot more fun exploring the world. Uh, the map is much more interconnected than previous Paper Mario games rely more on chapters, uh, but in the Origami King, you have a couple of instances where you're really kind of allowed to roam free, and it's very interesting. There is a, a a part where you hit up the sea, and it's you chart it like very much like Wind Waker, and I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that part of the game. Like I, I had a great time with it, uh, getting to find these islands, getting to see like the bonuses on each one, talking to the NPCs who were inexplicably just kind of stranded out on these little <laughs> islands. Um, there's like even like an abandoned cruise ship to to visit, and I have to say one thing this game does really well is mood. Um, Andre and I won't be getting too much into it because it's a big spoiler, but there are instances in this game where it gets pretty creepy. Um, I've I've said before in the past how Nintendo's really really excellent at G-rated horror, and that's something yeah. they they put through very well with the. Uh, Luigi's Mansion 3, where, as I recall, there was a scene where Luigi opens a stall to a toilet and there's just a, a mountain of rats glaring at him. And they're cute little Nintendo rats, but they're still rats, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing you can expect with with uh, the Origami King. There's always something cool to see, a cool, like, 
uh, world to explore. It, it kept me engaged. It kept me busy. Uh, I'm not going to be up here saying, oh my god, it's the next Persona 5 or anything like that. But sometimes you just want a cute, light game, and it fits that bill absolutely perfectly. I pretty much agree with most of that. Yeah, there's. I mean, I think there's, like I was looking through my footage for when I was editing the review, I'm like, oh man, there's so many like moments in this game that that do stand out, like so many unique uh, parts. Like there's just a, a lot of really good pockets that are good. But my issue kind of uh, relates more to the more open nature or the more interconnected nature as uh, Nadio is touching on, because I do like the idea of that. The first two games were exactly that, and I liked and I enjoyed those. Uh, but for me this time, I think what kind of uh, took away from the the overall experience was that I didn't find there was much of an overall push or like narrative or story to most mm-hmm. of these areas. So there was nothing really pushing me through beyond the objective of just reaching the ribbon at the end to, you know, beat the boss and, you know, cut it and slowly free the castle. Whereas in past Paper Mario games, um, there was usually something, some like kind of like local mystery or, you know, something afoot that you had to solve or resolve. And I enjoyed that. Like, there was an overall, like, atmosphere that I feel like this game's kind of missing. And for as unique visually as these areas look, they also still kind of feel generic. Like, you go to a mountain. You go to a desert. And while there are pockets in there that are really cool, like, I love the Vegas uh, Sniffet Town, yeah, for the instance. The Town is great. Yeah, it's great. And there's lots of cool moments like that. But it's between those moments that I kind of just felt bored. Because it didn't feel like there was much purpose to what I was doing beyond, you know, the MacGuffin of cutting the ribbons. So, yeah, that's kind of my issue. And I thought that was something that Color Splash actually did better because Color Splash, despite being um, level-based, I felt like it actually, those levels were often formed and or connected in some kind of narrative. And I actually that actually evoked memories of Thousand Year Door for me. And that's kind of felt like what I was missing a little bit in um, Origami King. With that said, yeah, there's a lot in this game to... Maybe you guys can kind of clarify this, t- this quote from uh, Tanabe. Uh, It was from an interview that went up on Video Game Chronicles, and they said, Since Paper Mario's sticker star, it is no longer possible to modify Mario characters or to create original characters that touch on the Mario universe. That means if we aren't using Mario characters for bosses, we need to create original characters with designs that don't involve the Mario universe at all, like we've done with Ollie and the stationary bosses. I'm confused because original characters have been part of Paper Mario and Mario RPG for quite a while, and it does seem like they do modify Mario characters, so I'm trying to figure out what they're getting at with that, because it's been a quote that's kind of gotten traction, I feel. Oh yeah, I, I saw it just before we started recording. Uh, Andre and I were actually talking about it a bit before we started recording as well. Um, I think I see what he means, um, in that, you, you know how people are always endlessly complaining about how the Toads are all generic in the games ever since, probably Sticker Star, whereas they... Uh, definitely had a lot more design and depth in the Thousand Year Door. And I think what it comes down to is maybe uh, he was forbidden from modifying Toad too much, like, you know, changing, just forbidden from changing Nintendo characters too much in general, because Nintendo 15 years ago is very different from Nintendo today in that Nintendo today is trying very hard to make that multimedia push which I feel like they have settled on a template for Mario and his world and his characters. Like, if you look at the Universal Park that they're building, you can see what they're going for, and you can see why they don't want to change that Nintendo, although quite traditional, is very, very corporate in that regard. And I could see why they why they would tell the Paper Mario team, hey, if you want to screw around with 
like a design for a, a, an established character like a toad or, or anything like that that's off the that's off the books you have to go ahead and make literally your own original character and he cites uh olivia and ollie as examples which of course have nothing to do with the mario universe they're they're paper dolls are actually i think their their designs are very charming but they're not very mario-ish yeah, uh, it's it is kind of disappointing to read to read the answer. I'm, I'm actually surprised Nintendo thought that interview was going to go over well. <laughs> there was there was no way that wasn't going to be asked. No, so, well, I'm sure that they when they offered that interview, it was probably planned a while beforehand, and were really kind of cognizant of the very weird. Uh, oh, sort of if controversy. there's, a, I mean, that could be, but I, I mean, we this has been coming up, and we had an interview. Uh, with the same uh, with the developers as well for Color Splash, and we had the exact same comments back then. So yeah, but to the exact point, um, it is it is disappointing to hear that because so many people do resonate with the part with a partner character specifically of previous Paper Mario's, which some were original, but by and large, a lot of them were based on existing designs. You had Goombella, for instance, was like mm-hmm. you know a female Goomba with a ponytail. You had a, a unique baby Yoshi. Uh, the first game in particular, I think every almost every partner character is based on existing Mario characters. Whereas in the more recent games, all you get are these same looking toads. And what's funny is I was thinking, well, there actually were a couple unique toads in uh, Color Splash. And I was thinking specific, or I'm sorry, in um, Origami King. And I was thinking specifically the ones that you find in the Ninja theme park. But then yeah. I'm like, oh wait, they're just wearing costumes, aren't they? <laughs> That's kind yeah, of the same with the. Uh what's his name, Captain Teode or whatever, the, the really strange right. captain of that boat. I actually liked him a lot, I liked his, but he had basically a trench coat, which, to be fair, made him look really cool, but it did, yeah. he was still a toad. Yeah, so that's, I think, I think that's, it's, it's disappointing, because I, I, I thought Color Splash was fine in that it kind of leaned into that angle, like it made fun of itself, with how he had, like, at one point, 50 identical toads in a line, and they all had a unique dialogue, despite not looking unique. But you go. You can only take that concept so far. You can only lampshade that for so long. Yeah. And it is kind of funny that um, that in this game, one way of getting around is by literally folding up the toads into different forms with origami uh, before mm-hmm. you un- unravel them, so they they then resume their normal shape. So, yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's weird. It, it kind of feels like Nintendo's a little bit more corporate and self aware of their image now that they have this really successful system and they are trying to branch out into forms of media, into other forms of media as. Nadia touched on, and it kind of feels almost Disney-esque. Like, where Disney, up until just recently, they were so afraid of using Mickey Mouse in anything remotely controversial or, like, anything that strayed from its sanitized corporate image that he just became a completely boring character. Uh, Mickey Mouse meant nothing for so long. It's only recently they started delving into the more, into the cartoon shorts that evoke the original era that Mickey you know, appeared in, that he's starting to become a little bit more interesting. I'm afraid of that happening to Mario in the Mario cast, where we just have these very sterilized, sterilized generic forms of them, and we don't see anything that strays from them, which is kind of weird to say in a game of paper, you know, called Paper Mario, yeah. where the entire idea is that this is a paperized version of this universe. Like, this is the chance to go nuts, so it sucks that they have to kind of rein it in. This is kind of rank speculation on my part, but... I mean, you wonder if that didn't come from the top, right? Because oh, sure, you know, oh, in the past did. five years, there's been definitely a realignment of leadership, especially since uh, Iwata died, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. And you you have to wonder if they're like, okay, well, this is the new strategy. This is how we're approaching Mario. And that has a ripple effect across all of their different games. Though I would also point out that we are 
only about a year and a half removed from Peachette. <laughs> yeah, that's the oh thing. It's hard to it's hard to really say what Nintendo's thinking. No one can ever say what they're thinking because when I think about what Andre said about Mario becoming sanitized, like he's absolutely right. But then I think like Luigi is still just like the craziest character, <laughs> and I love him so much. Then like Nintendo go, really leaned into Wario and Waluigi. They don't mm-hmm. care what happens to them. And remembering how how much personality the brothers had in first of all in the Mario and Luigi games, and uh, Luigi's Mansion Three, like when Mario and Luigi reunite in that game, it's actually genuinely sweet. So it's still there, but why it's forbidden from Paper Mario, I don't know. Paper Mario has always been kind of a weird magnet ever since, like a weird magnet for this kind of controversy, ever since apparently. Uh, Miyamoto said there doesn't need to be story in a Mario game and that's why we have no story in Sticker Star and maybe that's why we'd have less story in subsequent games and people still hold a huge grudge against Miyamoto for that to this day mm-hmm. is it just that people want Persona 5 but it's a Mario game I'd play that but <laughs> I mean maybe. I would too <laughs> that would be amazing what, what like Persona would Mario have you live a year in the Mushroom Kingdom <laughs> Just uh, that would be great. Oh man! As a pl- got- partially as a plumber fixing people's <laughs> plumbing issues. Yeah, holy crap! That's a great crossover idea. I want that. <laughs> and you could it would have, sound insanely well. And you could have a giant cast of Mario characters that you could theoretically work into your party, all of whom have different abilities and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing. Holy then, crap! Now I kind of want to play this game. <laughs> I totally want to play this game. Like I said, I just wonder what their personas would be because it's like in in. Persona 5 is like, okay, you have Captain Kidd and Arsene Lupin, but beyond that, like for Super Mario, what well, would you do? Well, with Luigi, like you would think that Luigi's Mansion would come into come into it somehow <laughs> with <laughs> their abilities and that kind of thing. I'll his like whole it. last damn mansion is, a, is his uh, persona. I mean, <sighs> paper Luigi's persona is obviously Gooigi. <laughs> That's true. He got right. a point. I am a thou and thou art a I. I bet you could fit in a lot of really good references, like finding a way to get back the plane from Super Mario Land, for example. Oh, <laughs> Getting Tatanga in there. Yes, Tatanga. Uh, Tatanga's way overdue, man. Or Wart. <laughs> Bring back Wart. the classic yeah, villains. Bring back yeah. Wart. Jeez. Yeah. Like, I, I think people, I, I think this is speaking to a broader want for Paper Mario to be something more for... Mm-hmm. Nintendo to really go for it to create an actual RPG that they've kind of kind of demurred from kind of refrained on doing and maybe that's where the the core of the fan unrest is also just the fact that basically no Nintendo games have come out at all this year and people yeah. the, people are getting restless I think people yeah. are very restless and I don't blame them to be honest and uh, E3 really th- uh, sorry uh, COVID <laughs> COVID <laughs> association with E3 basically one really the same. Uh, that really threw a wrench into everything. Like now, there's a rumor going around that we're going to get a direct next week, and it might be huge. But that's a rumor. It's, it's so eh at this point. We just don't yeah. know what's going on. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. We don't know what's going on. Like Paper Mario is effectively out today in most regions, um, and we know literally nothing of what's on the horizon beyond Breath of the Wild two, and that's not even dated. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's- kind of a problem like there's nothing to kind of like look forward to uh that has been officially revealed you gotta love that people are actively just sitting there wish listing the nintendo direct and it's gonna have final fantasy tactics war of the lions and it's gonna <laughs> power have power stone, stone 3. 3 i like power stone 3 i like the whole like the whole rumor that we're talking about was delivered on 4chan by, by bob evans quote unquote <laughs> and their portrait was literally a bob evans <laughs> and i'm reading these rumors like get out of my face bob evans 
one other point I wanted to do, uh, kind of bring up in relation to this whole thing, uh, like with them, you know, kind of like treating Mario as like this kind of very safe corporate mascot, um, almost to the point too that even in this game, I felt like Mario had even like pretty much no personality, and that's not too uncommon for the Paper Mario games. But you're yeah. playing Thousand Year Door, he felt like he 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 did a couple more things, whereas here he just is really a passive, almost well, like in his, in a narrative sense, pretty passive. Um, but I will say I do want to give the developers credit that with these limitations in place. They really do lean in on some of this other weird stuff, and I do appreciate that. Like, I saw some people initially like making fun of the fact that you fight like office supplies, but those, those are, are great. Are, yeah, they're great. They're a they're highlight. Great. Like they like they really go all in on how wild that can be, while still having it kind of like make this weird logical sense. Um, yeah, I really enjoy those those battles, and yeah, the, even those bosses felt like they had personality, both in how. They were animated in how they, you know, actually spoke to you. Like one of them is basically a gangster. <laughs> one of them's a gangster. One of them, I love. I won't spoil it. I love the swordsman. Just the way he was written was yes. like so much fun and so, so great. made so much sense for what he was. Right, I totally agree. So when it gets down to it, would you? I, I don't feel like Paper Mario Origami King is going to be on like best of lists. I don't think it's going to remember be remembered as this big classic for the Nintendo Switch or anything, but do you guys, would you guys recommend it? Is it a game people are like, yeah, you got the Summer Blues, you don't really want to pick up the one Samurai game on that other platform, (laughs) so uh, get this. Yeah, I, I, so I would recommend it with um, (laughs) hesitation, I suppose, or some, you know, some additional notes. I think if you enjoyed, like, if you've enjoyed either of the previous two games on any level, I think there's a good chance you'll have at least some fun here. For me personally, you know, I've been very mixed on the previous two games. Hate the Sticker Star, really enjoyed Color Splash, even though it has issues. I thought that the things that they leaned into um, were really enjoyable. And this game, in some ways for me, is like a step back, but in others it does, you know, some things entirely new. Um, partially of which is the, you know, the combat system that we haven't really touched on too much by itself, which... Uh, I, I did enjoy, I had some issues with it as well, but I thought it was, it was unique. So I would say it's definitely worth giving a shot, because I think there is, like, the moments here that are great are things I haven't really seen much elsewhere, even in Nintendo games. And there's there's one moment in this game that I literally, guess we're on this podcast, is there... <laughs> Sure. Oh yeah. There, there's <laughs> one moment where there's one moment where I literally said, "Holy shit!" And I won't say <laughs> I won't say what it is, but I want to spoil it. But I'm like, I can't believe they went there in the Nintendo game. There's actually a couple of moments like that here, as Nadia kind of touched on earlier. We're not gonna spoil it, but um, yeah, there's some things in here that really surprised me. So even though for much of the game I was kind of mixed on the final the final few hours of it really won me over, and it actually made me glad I played through the game to see it through. But I think the final I think actually the final stretch of this game might actually be my favorite in the Paper Mario series. I'd have to replay them all to fully be sure. I did just play Thousand Year Door again recently. Um, but I really did enjoy the final stretch of this game. And uh yeah, so I would overall I would overall recommend it um with those, you know, <laughs> with those clarifications in mind. Yeah, uh I'm largely in the same boat where if you are absolutely like insistent on having a game that is like Paper Mario 2, sorry, like a thousand year door, um, you will not find it here at all. But right. if you are open-minded about these games, and if there are lots of people out there who are like, hey, I actually did like Sticker Star, hey, I actually like Color Splash, you will absolutely love the Origami King. Uh, it is, I had a lot of fun with it, and um, like Andre said, the end game is really good, like mm-hmm. much better than I was expecting. Once, like, it's not a spoiler to say this, but once you end up in that spa, because they show these, uh, the screenshots of the spa in the previews, 
and you kind of partner up with Kamek, like that was that was fantastic. Just the way like he and Olivia kind of became friends with each other. I thought that was really cute. Shout out to Olivia, by the way. I love Olivia. <laughs> Olivia's very cute. I like Olivia because um, usually Paper Mario partners are written more snarky, but Olivia has like a she's very naive and is very yeah. cute. Yeah, she's she's innocent and genuine, and uh, which is the exact opposite of like Kirsty from Sticker Star, who I could not stand. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about her. <laughs> yeah, she's not worth remembering. <laughs> Probably for the best. Is there a way that Nintendo can kind of revive its fortunes, a la Luigi's Mansion, and maybe get a little more excitement around it for the next game? And I don't mean make. I mean, nope. sure, yeah, they could make Persona Mario. That would be really fun. But is there a way to take? paper mario and get people like it again is it really just a matter of well just 2000 year door again just 2000 year door too <laughs> i feel like that might be it because uh, yes thousand year door too a thousand year door was a very good rpg i'd love to see an extension of his gameplay we might not be able to have the same kind of variety of characters for the reasons we've gone over here but one complaint I have seen that's actually quite valid is some people don't like the kind of limbo that the battle systems in the newer Paper Mario games occupy, where battles are a little less than useful. They don't just give you that cold, hard experience reward. So it's a matter of, well, why have them? Why not have them more? Why not have something more action-based? Like there are actually moments in, in the Origami King where you fight these giant paper mache statues with your hammer, and that's actually pretty good. That works perfectly fine. Um, I would be okay with a more kind of Zelda-style Paper Mario game. It would take away the one element of these games that people are really not excited about, and that is the battle systems, which tend to get, they tend to be the weakest part of these games. And I'm saying that as someone who actually did kind of like the the ring system in uh, Paper Mario uh, Origami King. I liked throwing coins at the toes and saying, "Do my heavy work for me. I don't feel like doing this." Yeah. But when I figured things out for myself, it was very satisfying. I do very much like the boss fights. I think I like the valumental fights more than you did, Andre. You seem to really hate them. I hated them. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I like them a lot, especially the object fights we were talking about, because there were some really creative moments in those fights that, that really impressed me. So Nintendo, the, the Team 4 Paper Mario, can clearly make interesting, cool battles, but they just kind of use them in the, right, in the wrong ways. It's, a, it's very hard to describe. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the battle, like, I, I, I agree with you in that, like, you know, I, I largely enjoy the battle system, but I also have some issues with it. There were times where I'm like, I just want to get through it. I want to deal with another puzzle, right? Right, um, exactly. But uh, I, I thought they were touching on, like, a really interesting idea. Like, they paired, like, the, the idea of, like, a 3D battlefield, a 360-degree battlefield with, like, a more conventional uh, turn-based combat system. That could be really, there could be something really fun there. Because in this game, the actual battle portion is almost completely de-emphasized in favor of the puzzle portion. So I think mm-hmm. calling them battles is almost doing a disservice to what they actually are because what you do in the battle portion is just in response to how you set up the puzzle the first time, like how you arrange the enemy. So there's no real thought process to it. But yeah, you were kind of touching on something there, Nadia, I totally agree with. I almost think they should just lean in hard on the action on the action element. Ditch the battles entirely. Kind of go back to what Super Paper Mario started, which at the time felt like a weird direction for it, but maybe is where they should start going with. And they kind of touched on in this game, as you said, with the paper mache enemies, which are actual real-time based combat, and uh, just build the entire game around that. You know, have it so you're fighting these enemies out in the actual world. Uh, You can still retain some of the RPG elements if you want, like, you know, damage hit points, you know, and maybe even Mm -hmm. even bring back experience points if you want in this form. Um, and yeah, just kind of go all in in that. I think I think at the very least it would solve my pa- or 
partially resolve my pacing issues I had here, uh, where it would just ensure that you're always, you know, there's always something interesting around the corner, you're not stuck in these battles constantly, and um, yeah, that might be the way to do it. Otherwise, I, I think it would still be, to some level, uh, controversial among the community, because I think the only way you would ever get most people on board again is just to make the Thousand Year Door 2 again, for better or worse. But that aside, I think going to more just lean into the action element. I mean, if, in fact, Nintendo doesn't even call it, call it an RPG anymore if you look at their genre labels. Even they've mm. <laughs> abandoned that. Yeah. And I think they should just kind of lean in on that. You know, focus on the world building, like the, the world structure. Um, you can retain everything else about Paper Mario, just change the combat. Paper Mario is played out and Nintendo should retire it. Wow. You don't play the games, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just kind of bored by the concept. I feel like they've really minded about as much as they possibly can. The origami concept is a, a fun idea and it's a cute little side story and everything. Uh, you guys can speak to more about whether or not they actually make good on that concept, but I don't know, like, We've had multiple Paper Marios. It was really charming back in the, you know, N64 days and maybe the GameCube days when it first started, but it's just become less and less impactful over time. And it sort of feels like this particular side series is running out of steam a little bit. And maybe it's time to rethink it and uh, come up with a new Mario RPG vertical to kind of encompass maybe what was lost with Mario and Luigi, which has kind of gone away. Actually, it's funny you bring up Mario and Luigi, but I was going to mention the fact that I, I find it kind of funny that Nintendo at one point had combined both these series together, Mario and Luigi and Paper Mario, in the form of paper, Mario and Luigi Paper Jam, yeah. which is arguably at the peak, or maybe peak's the wrong word, at the lowest point in both of the series' history. This is after Sticker Star, this is after, um, I forget what the most recent Mario and Luigi was, but the series is trying to feel worn out at that point, and then they mix the two together at the worst possible time. Um... But I think I think Nadia kind of t- hit on something earlier that I think would be interesting. Maybe they just need to, kind of, need to kind of reimagine what Paper Mario is and broaden it. And uh, Nadia had mentioned uh, like Paper Zelda, like or making more like Zelda. Why not just make yeah. it Paper Paper Zelda? That could be a fun way of reinvigorating uh, what these this Paper series could be. And it might be a good way of kind of ele- elegantly elegantly working around the battle system or the lack thereof. Do Paper Metroid and make everybody go nuts? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Could you imagine the salt over that announcement? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> there is room for a lighter Mario series, I think, and I think Paper Mario fits that. And there's, that just don't see any reason to retire. It's like those people who say, oh, retire Mario, period. Like, Yahtzee really rode that for a while. Obviously, you don't re- retire Mario. I'm just, I'm just saying that find something new, really new to do with it, not just a, an interesting new art style. Find a way to make it seem bigger than it actually is. Because right now it just seems like it's a little side project that gets trotted out occasionally. But I don't really know why this series exists still, except for the fact that it's a legacy series. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's... I, I totally get that. But I think I think part of it is that that's kind of always what the series has been. It's only because of the fact that we're so far removed from the game that a lot of people want, Thousand Year Door, that has been kind of elevated to this, you know, like, what, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's like triple A status almost, if you will. There were always kind of like these weird spin-off games for a while, and they were never even, I don't think they were ever meant to be like a, a, akin to a mainline Mario game, for instance. So it's it's just because it's been so long since the last one in that vein that it kind of stands out, I think. 
Okay, thanks for your thoughts on Paper Mario the Origami King. You can go find our review over on US Gamer by Nadia, and you can go check out Game Explains YouTube channel for their review as well. I strongly recommend it. Andre, thanks for coming on the show. Do you have anything else that you want to plug before you head out? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, no, that's pretty much it. Just uh, We cover all things Nintendo at Game Explain. So if you want to hear more about Origami King or anything else Nintendo related, check out Game Explain. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll have you again again at another point. In the meantime, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, thanks to Andre for coming on the show and talking about Paper Mario the Origami King. Let's continue on to the track of the week. Each week we pick a different track from an RPG for this weekly segment in which we talk about why it matters to the RPG and we just kind of reflect on how important the music is to this particular genre. This week we've got a classic track. See if you can recognize this song. This week's track of the week is Quinna's theme from Final Fantasy IX, and we picked this one for a reason, Nadia. Yes, we did. Um, if you haven't painted to Square Enix, you should, because right now they are hosting interviews with the old team from Final Fantasy IX, and they're all kind of recalling what it was like to work on the game. We have summarized those interviews so far, so if you want to go check that out on our site, it is available for you. Uh, but one thing that came up was one of the art producers mentioned how they love Queen's theme because it's very underlooked, which is true. And it's a very energetic theme, which starts off with those like drums and it kind of continues that like, you know, really sort of tribal sound throughout the whole song. And it just keeps piling on and adding to it and adding to it. And it is actually a really good song if you're trying to power through something. Uh, I, I appreciate why it was highlighted in these interviews. Yes, this is the favorite track of Toshiyuki Itahana, and they said, There are a lot of well-known songs from Final Fantasy IX, so I'd like to talk about one that doesn't get much attention. I love Quinna's theme. The banging rhythm of the drums when the song starts, that strong, steady sound, gives me a lot of courage. When I'm super overloaded or really feeling the pressure of an approaching deadline in the middle of the night, I'll often listen to Quinna's theme while working. I think, I, I agree, it's like... It's very matching of Quinna, who is just a food monster, just runs around <laughs> eating everything. <laughs> yeah, Quinna is part, as I recall, is part of the Q or Qu tribes. It's hard to pronounce, but uh, they are what they are, and they love to eat, and that's all that really matters. And they have a really cool theme song that I think accompanies you when you hunt for frogs in that game. 
What did you think of Quinn as a character? I mean, they're just sheer comic relief, right? Oh, yeah, just sheer comic relief. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't use them often in battle. I hear that if used properly, they're, they're pretty powerful. I seem to recall them having a really kind of curious-looking alternate form. Like, I remember everyone had that powered-up form that in the game that I didn't get to use that much, and Quinnas was just kind of this weird, dark thing. It was a little unsettling. They're a blue mage, right? So they eat things, right. they get their yeah. powers? Yeah, so a very interesting take on the blue mage. Usually blue mages get hit in the face with something before they, they're like, oh, I get it, I understand what this is now. Quinn just eats, which is really, in a way that makes more sense than standing still and getting your ass kicked by an enemy and saying, okay, now I know things. So Quinn is basically Kirby. Yes, definitely very Kirby-ish. <laughs> Don't think about the void that is their stomach. It will, it will terrify you. You know, at the time, I didn't really think much about Final Fantasy IX's soundtrack, but I feel like I've developed an increased appreciation for it these days. Appreciated it almost as soon as I started playing the game. But, I mean, I won't say it ranks amongst my absolute favorites, but it does have a couple of my of songs that, are, that I absolutely adore. Last week, I think we talked about Rose of May and how much I love that song. I like the Black Mage Village theme. There's, and, of course, we just talked about the, the Ku Marsh so yeah, there are definitely some, so to speak, bangers in that in that soundtrack. It felt like at the time a deliberate throwback to more of a retro styled approach versus Final Fantasy VIII, which was more bombastic and fuller and maybe more ambitious. I think Final Fantasy VIII is my favorite soundtrack out of the the three PlayStation entries, but Final Fantasy IX it's more soulful in some ways. Yeah, uh, Final Fantasy VIII is definitely more theatrical. And I have to admit, the only song I really know and love from that soundtrack is Man with a Machine Gun. The I think it has the best battle theme out of any of the three Final Fantasy. Like Final Fantasy IX's actual normal battle theme is pretty weak, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not my favorite. It's it, that See, that does sound like a little bit like, I don't want to say pandering, but pandering. <laughs> like, it... It has like it almost feels stitched together from old Final Fantasy themes, which I'm sure is the intent. But it kind of I don't know. I fi- I feel like the parts don't come together as well as they should. Okay, that was our track of the week. We'll be back with another track next week. In the meantime, let's continue on to the mailbag. Last week we talked about Crosscode. Well, we reviewed it with Hiran, and we agreed that it was a very nice little RPG, um, an indie RPG that recently came out on. PS4 and Switch, it had some cool meta commentary on the MMO genre. Sammy J9 says, Crosscode is a phenomenal game on so many levels. It has excellent fast-paced and deep combat, full of different skills and lots of customizable options with unique skill trees for each element, and it's also pretty tactical, so you don't have need to focus on how to break each enemy's guard in order to defeat them quickly and efficiently. And they go on to praise uh, the large world, the mind-bending dungeons, the amazing soundtrack, and say ultimately one of the best parts of the game is its heart, for lack of a better term. Leah is one of the best protagonists in recent memory, and the amount of raw emotion and expressiveness in this game gets it across with its detailed character portraits is truly masterful. The game can be quite emotional at times and really captures the feeling of friendship and community that can build up in an MMO even through harsh circumstances. So there you go. Another recommendation for CrossCode, Nadia. Yeah, heart is very important in an RPG. I mean, heart is very important. That's why it's part of the Planeteers in Captain Planet. Everyone says heart sucks, but no, heart is the most important because it can talk to animals. Well, you know, the robot chicken one where they said, well, heart, what a terrible thing. And then he has the tiger pounce on a <laughs> <ruler>. <laughs> See, there you go. 
Uh, sometimes Robot Chicken really hits a spot, I have to say. This podcast has definitely caught me in my FF9 feelings. I am once more inclined to agree with Kat. FF9 is definitely a standout in the series as far as writing goes. Not only is Vivi quite probably the most interesting Final Fantasy character, but even the characters that seem like boring tropes are executed very well. Steiner is a great infusion of humor into most scenes that he appears in, and Zidane is actually successful at being the false bravado character who has deep-seated reasons for his insecurities. The hallway scene with Zidane where You're Not Alone plays might be my favorite scene in a Final Fantasy. Do you remember that one, Nadia? Yes, I do. Uh, I remember the, the the song. That's another great one from Final Fantasy Nine. That was a that was a that was a cool scene. In a way, Zidane's a little bit like Cloud, where it begins, whereas Cloud begins with like the uber cool, like awesome protagonist, and Zidane starts more as like he's very confident and funny and kind of cocky, kind of a rogue, kind of like Locke, right? Yeah, definitely. Eventually, it strips away like his, the layers of his identity and does, in fact. Re- reveal that feeling of like who am i where am i coming from like it's very playstation here final fantasy but i feel it works yeah uh one thing about zidane that's interesting is that his tail kind of gives him that like carefree sort of uh look to him like you associate him with like tricksters like the monkey the monkey king or you know, someone innocent and playful like goku so the the tail is definitely an interesting uh, interesting uh, accessory there's actually a line in Dissidia or Dissidia 2 where Laguna says he tried to pull on the tail to see like if it was real. And he's like, yeah, it's real. And he's really mad that I pulled on it. But We actually have to wrap up because, Nadia, you have this Dragon Quest Nine. Remember When to write for the site, which should be up by the time that you actually see this podcast. So go check it out. Indeed. All right. Axe of the Blogout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure... To follow me on Twitter, I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And you should follow Game Explain. Thanks to them for coming on the show. Check out our other podcast, Branching Narratives. We'll have a brand new episode next Wednesday. And, of course, check out our newsletter, which you can subscribe to on our homepage. We'll be back again next Monday, probably continuing on with our console RPG quest. It's about time to talk about the Nintendo DS or we could be end up talking about other things. I do believe that there is a big Xbox reveal coming up soon. There certainly is. By the time this is up, yeah, I think it'll be that week, won't it? Yeah, if there's a big RPG reveal that week, we might be able to get them on the show to be able to talk about it. So Ooh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Try looking forward to it. All right, then. So we'll be back next Monday. But for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. <laughs>